and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name's Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst. I'm a writer, I'm a director, and it's so hot I'm not wearing any trousers. Dan, are you wearing trousers? I'm wearing shorts. Ah, well, that's a compromise that I can respect. The the child's trouser. Yes. And we are here this week to talk about Dan's choice for the fortnight, Rainy Dog, which is part of the Black Society trilogy box set. Now, Dan, why did you want to do the middle part of a trilogy that not many people have seen this fortnight? For the podcast because they're <laughs> a spiritual trilogy rather than a narrative trilogy yep. it's my favorite of the three films yeah and i think that it's the one i can enthuse about the easiest i love it i love them all yeah but rainy dog is is absolutely my favorite fantastic yeah that wasn't a dig by the way i just thought i contextualize no, it in a way that kind of people can understand because i do think that this is going to be another one of the underseen ones but before I get into what I felt about it, I'd like to start by acknowledging that these are very important films. Um, they were Mike's first theatrical releases following his director video career. Actually, we haven't mentioned that these were uh, directed by Mike, so that's a big part of why you're doing them, presumably. Yeah, I was thinking about the fact that I think Mike might now, especially if you count all three of these as separate films, but even if it, you just think of the fact... You just think we're covering one film today. I think Mike might now be our most featured director. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and yeah, that that's kind of a, a reflection of, of how much we both love him. And, and yeah, these movies kind of thematically, all three are very interesting, especially in what they have to say about violence. I personally prefer Mike when he's actually enjoying violent acts and their consequences when he's kind of completely unleashed. Though there are moments throughout these three films where he is unleashed he's actually a lot more kind of passive or subtle in rainy dog um yeah that one especially feels kind of more on the poetic side uh especially compared to his later stuff and yeah i i think it's great that arrow puts out deep cut movies like this and and your evidence that there's an audience for it um but while i, I do enjoy the movie it's not one necessarily from the arrow collection that i'd kind of press feverishly into someone's hands however that is the case for you this is a film that you're very kind of passionate about and that is the purpose of this podcast so dan take it away what do people need to know about this movie and why should they pick up this box set well i'm going to be relatively oblique because as you said these are under scene i don't want to do too much in the way of spoilers what I will say is, if you've seen a Mike film or two and you felt like they were a bit much for you, or especially if you've seen some of his more recent, less highbrow stuff, and you've thought, you know, this guy's fun, but it's kind of wacky and mad, and there's not a lot of like, like narrative there, um, maybe I won't bother with his stuff because that doesn't appeal to me. Then this is the other side of Mike. I think all of the technical ability that's present in in the films that you've seen, but possibly dismissed, is there. But as as Sam said earlier, they're much more sort of dramatic. The term humanist gets used a lot with these films. They're more subtle. They're more restrained. And as much as I love the crazy stuff, like the really crazy stuff, I think that I do prefer this end of his work because you've got 
like those moments of shock and those moments of extremity are more surprising but also they're contextualized in a way that makes them more effective so as much as i love sort of bombast and explosive action and just crazy shit going on I also like it to be balanced out with something that makes, you know, otherwise I, I can feel a bit numb after 90 minutes of just fucking crazy stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons that I loved Audition so much is that Audition really is that fantastic balance for me with that third act like dump. And I didn't know, I mean, I'd seen a couple of Mike films, but I didn't know much about him when I saw that. And that was such a pleasant surprise for me. But looking back at like Mike's stuff now overall and he's made so many films I do find that the ones I gravitate to for rewatch and for and for like just solid quality and enjoyment of cinema is this more slightly more austere definitely a lot more as you said poetic um cinema I just love them this is uh you know a, a picture that sits in the middle of a, a trilogy about displacement um Mike, unlike a lot of japanese directors is dealing with uh, racial displacement which is something that's not super common in japanese cinema i mean going forward to things like city of god he's playing with it again it turns up in a lot of his other movies there's three sort of different fish out of water stories uh, happening in this trilogy in this one it's a, a yakuza sort of disgraced yakuza who's who's left the gang uh, and now he's in taiwan just living his life he's got someone chasing after him who can't go back to their gang until he's executed him so there's this sort of ongoing sort of damocles sword over his head um and right at the beginning of the movie my favorite trope of japanese cinema occurs he is he's has a child dumped upon him <laughs> And so suddenly you've got a grumpy man who's disillusioned with life uh, and he's got a child he's got to look after. But on top of all of that, uh, he's got a man trying to kill him and he's in a, a country that isn't his own. He's he's alien to his surroundings. Mm. Uh, and it just all of that through Mike's lens is just sweet, sweet nectar to me. Yeah. And, and watching this movie, basically, it really kind of stood out to me how much of a Dan movie this is. I'm certainly not going to spoil any of your recommendations, but I know that there's uh, a potential recommendation that you're going to make, which uh, is a film that's very, very special to you. And I can imagine this would kind of resonate a little bit with that. Also, the lead watches a Gamera movie on his computer. Yes, indeed. Um, and that's that's quite Dan. So, yeah, for me, because it doesn't have the same kind of resonances as it has for you, and because I go into it as a, a massive fan of, of the crazier Mike stuff, I also love Audition, obviously. Anyone who's a cineast will love Audition, I think, and um, actually revisited our Audition episode recently so i do recommend that people kind of um seek that out if they haven't listened to it um and also our blade of the immortal episode but um yeah for me this one is a, a solid three star film it doesn't really feel like a miko movie at all to me and it feels kind of ordinary in that respect i feel like it could have been made by any kind of japanese or, or taiwanese director of the past 40 years it doesn't have that usual wild magic it's got quite a basic visual style and it's a very straightforward plot that's reminiscent of, of quite a lot of stuff. It is good, don't get me wrong, and, and the ending's fine. It just takes a long time to get there. And I don't know if I could recommend it to anyone other than the most kind of ardent Mike maniac. But you do feel differently. So when did you first see it? And what are your kind of nostalgic memories of it? So I, back in... 2003 2002 
Um, I was at the Cannes Film Festival with a, a dear friend of mine and my the best man from my wedding to be at that point, Joe Norman, and my to be wife, although not yet at that point, uh, Jen Handorf. And there was a charity thing going on at a at one of the beach parties where you could buy like a sort of three minute pitch session with a Hollywood exec, and you would get to randomly assign someone from you know one of these volunteers and then all the money would go to this charity and it was an opportunity to get access to someone that you as a you know member of the not elite would would struggle to get otherwise and we were attending this party and we'd had a bit to drink and Jen and Joe bought me one of the tickets and Joe and I had been working on a sort of religious horror film at the time called Immaculate and they were like pitch immaculate pitch immaculate so they got me this um this ticket and I was still pretty pissed (laughs) and I sat down in front of someone who had their name on his on a little bit of card in front of him I didn't recognize his name Uh, and I had a panic and and I didn't want to pitch Immaculate because I felt I'd mess it up because I was drunk and then he'd remember that and it would never get made Hmm. incidentally spoiler alert it's never been made It's a great um, premise, though. I remember you telling me about this years and years ago. I still remember I, you. I kind still of... want to make it. Yeah. But yeah, so I instead pitched a different film, which I made up on the spot. And it was a revenge story. It was set in the UK. It was about a mixed ethnicity passing for Japanese, Japanese English boy in his late teens, orphaned, ward of the state, not knowing where he's going to go with his life. He's getting... he's. He's getting older. The state's going to stop paying for him to, you know, his accommodation and so on. He's going to be sort of turfed out. And he falls in with a group of, like, shit Yakuza who've been kicked out of Japan <laughs> for being shit. And uh, and he basically embroils himself with them as a translator. And he slowly climbs through the ranks. And, and then there's a twist. Uh, and I pulled this, you know, off the top of my head at this thing uh, and spoke without breathing for three minutes and the guy gave me his card and he said that's a great idea i've got meetings in la for the next two weeks i'm back in london after that give me a call we'll set up a meeting uh his name was colin Vaines. he was head of development for miramax holy shit and i was and miramax was on his card it was not on the little bit of paper in front of him on the table and i was blown away i was like oh my goodness that's insane so i went back to joe and jen and i said guys i've pitched a different movie and we've got two weeks to write it (laughs) (laughs) which we did we wrote a draft not a great draft in two weeks and then colin came back and he said uh the meetings in la were about the weinsteins selling miramax it's closing down right the uk development wing is shutting down and that's not going to be part of the deal and it fell away but we had this script now that we had worked on so we thought well look we really like it let's keep working on it and we'll develop it and we'll see if we can sell it somewhere else because if he liked it someone else will like it and we carried on working on it and in the process of writing it i discovered the black uh, society trilogy and we watched it and it became like an oh my god this is the tone particularly rainy dog this is the tone for our film and narratively they're not that similar but stylistically it felt like the closest thing i'd ever seen to what had been playing in my head when i was drunkenly railing at this man for three minutes on a french beach i am so so glad i asked that question I feel a little bit like a detective um, because I feel like I've just gotten to the bottom of why we're doing this movie this fortnight um, because that is a very, very powerful memory. There's all sorts mixed in there. There's the 
nostalgia of those early days with Jen and um, you know your friendship with with Joe and and the rush the adrenaline rush of of that pitch session and god what an amazing story i'm so glad you told that that's uh, genuinely fantastic and more compelling to me than anything in rainy dog no offense (laughs) (laughs) the i mean the thing is we did actually end up optioning the script giant film optioned it uh and they you know we did some more polishing and they gave us some money and and they came back to us with notes and like stupid fucking children we said we don't like the direction you're taking this (sighs) So we're going to drop the option and see if we can take it elsewhere. Oh, no. And then there was like a little bit of time where it looked like it was going to get ma- get made with a private investor. Like the day after, I meant to tell this on the Burst City episode, the day after this, we were at the Kill Bill party, like the secret Kill Bill party in the hills of Cannes that we managed to sort of blag our way into at two in the morning, three in the morning. Love like it. they have the huge beach party for everybody. And that's like the the... the the distraction party yes. where all the celebs go off to the secret party yeah, yeah. and we had heard whisper of this we went and hung out at soho house which was like the only party where you have to pay for your own drinks until like two in the morning so that we just because we got a sniff of this party we ended up at this party i ended up uh, jen got propositioned by michael madsen and i ended up talking for a long time that evening with asano tadanobu and kasuhito ishii both of whom i adore mm. And I drunkenly pitched Climb, as it's called, again <laughs> that night to Casito. And I said to him at the time, I think it needs a, a, a two directors. It needs a Japanese director and, a, and an English director to, to go together on it. Mm. And he's like, no, no, you should direct it yourself. You should direct it yourself. So, you know, obviously I was... And it's like, oh, well, that's relatively easy for you to say as the like one of the main producers at Madhouse. You, you can step into directing. I, as a like an absolute imposter <laughs> it's not so easy but yeah like no, that was such a such a when... heady and exciting uh yeah i mean those 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 can trips uh are very special and and especially the kind of blagging aspect of getting into parties oh. and stuff yeah. yeah i managed to get into the inglorious bastards party which you know kind of similar but um the kill bill party is obviously um very very cool when do you think you're gonna direct a film dan because obviously back in the day you did short films and stuff and and obviously your career as a a special effects artist has just gone from strength to strength over the past 10 years but i know you do harbor ambitions to direct a feature still and you've got these scripts sitting in a drawer when do you think you will kind of carve out time to do that man i don't know i mean the thing is i'm so busy doing something that i'm lucky enough to love that it yeah you know the um you know, i barely find time to watch enough films to do a podcast <laughs> the idea of balancing a feature like directing a first feature alongside the effects thing yeah. and then the other side of it is that like effects the film industry doesn't really stop for you so if i turn down a year and a half's worth of jobs to to do a feature mm-hmm. that's basically me set back like five years of career shit yeah so it's really tough. I, like, I, it's still something I very much want to do. And Jen and I are writing together again these days. Oh, so you great. know, maybe that maybe that'll be something that happens more than than directing, at least for a while. Because I really enjoy it. And I mean, you know, you and I talk about story all the time, yeah. like outside of films that exist, such like 
talking about it. Yeah. And I love it. I love yeah. all of that sort of alchemy of putting together a narrative and, and being able to you know, manipulate a willing audience. Precious Arrowhead, you, you will probably never get this opportunity, sadly, though maybe, you know, a, a festival or something you can approach Dan. But talking through a story with Dan, whether it's, you know, something that's going to get made or just a, a random pitch that you've had in the middle of the night or whatever, it's such a joy. Um, yeah, you're so, so good at it, Dan. Like, it's so much fun to talk stories with you. And I hope it's the same vice versa because, um, you know, I, I used to really enjoy those nights when we'd basically <laughs> uh, structure and plot an entire script and then we'd never get around to actually writing it. But Well, that's it. Like, I think the thing is with, with special effects, my favourite bit of effects is the R&D. My favourite bit is the figuring out how to do it. And, you know, I, I, I also enjoy doing it, but my favourite bit is the planning. And I think that that, to some extent, is the same with writing. Mm. I really love figuring out the beats, the structure, like how it's all going to fit together. I love a twist. I love, uh, like, subtle foreshadowing. I love, like, dotting all of the I's and crossing all of the T's. Writing is a fucking slog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've um, <laughs> found a way around that in the way that I make my films. So with a little more flash and a little more flash too, they're improvised basically. It's almost Mike Lee-esque where we find the characters and then explore them within the shooting um, and, and create a narrative kind of on the fly. Um, because I'm with you, like, I, I just, it's not that I don't love scripts and uh, love script writers and, there's a script that, that's out there at the moment called Needle Drop that I'm very proud of and I really enjoyed writing it and I can't wait to shoot it. But there's something a lot more thrilling about improvising a movie and making it up as you go along. I just said the same thing twice, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's really, really kind of, it gets the adrenaline going. But anyway, we've uh, we've gone off track possibly well, because... Um, I can I can I can bring us back yes. <laughs> loosely. Um, obviously they are two very different people with different styles although you could say I think it would be fair to say that Rainy Dog is possibly Mike's most Gitano-esque film uh, um, that's actually where I thought you were going in your recommendations but anyway I remember a story from the set of Brother Takeshi Kitano's first uh, American picture mm. where he turned up for the for the shoot day with the American actors but his sides quote unquote and for our non- uh, film set listeners the sides are the pages that you're gonna like the pages of the script that you're gonna shoot that day with none of the other stuff so you just print out like a copy of the sides is is just the you know the three two five pages you're gonna shoot that day um but his sides were just some notes on the back of a receipt <laughs> <laughs> i mean they're normally pretty small but that is ridiculous yeah uh, and like they weren't printed no one else had a copy <laughs> so there's there's your improvisation i love it um Whereas I don't think this was like this. No. There is so much like I, I know that you maybe didn't get as much sort of like pathos from it as I did. Like one of the things that I love about it. And again, I'll try and be a little oblique because I don't want to spoil too much. But whenever you it does still have moments of ultraviolence in it. It's not tame. Um, it's just not, you know, itchy the killer. I think I'm desensitized, Dan, because uh, yeah. I feel like I could that show this to my mum. Some of those shootouts are, are great, but but the camera's always on the emotional response. Mm. It's always on how it makes people feel, particularly yep. the kid. 
Like that shot in the cafe where he reaches over and he f- shoots the guy in the in the head in the cafe, and the sh- the shot of the gun firing is a long shot across the hand holding the gun, which is just sort of diagonally in shot onto the kid's face as he witnesses this killing. It's this is all very much about uh, the sort of the 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 emotional aftershocks at, at the beginning when the woman hands off the kid and she's like you have to do it now and then we cut to her in the car and her sort of stoic business you've got to do this fa- like facade breaks down and she's just crying for those like five seconds in the taxi and then we just never see her again <laughs> like mm. she's gone from the film but it's because it's all about the emotional residence and living with what you've done which is what the two main guys are having to do all the way through it absolutely no that i, I think that's why i say that I prefer Mike when he's enjoying violent acts and their consequences as opposed to, you know, seeing those consequences. Um, probably because I'm a sicko. It had, man. A, hilarious, um, it had yeah. a hilarious giant puppet penis censored out with crude filmic scratch. Yeah, that I mean, that is clearly the best bit in the whole film. But um, uh, Which I feel like is the same... This is the same year as Full Metal Gokudo, <laughs> which is which is all comic penis censorship. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, for me, what it reminds me most of um, this this whole set really is Lars von Trier's Europa trilogy. So yeah. three early works that are thematically connected as opposed to narratively connected that are very, very good in their own way. Um, but they're still a director finding his style as opposed to arriving fully formed. Now, obviously, Mike has a lot more behind him than Lars von Trier had when he made the Europa trilogy, but these were his first kind of theatrical releases. So I do think that there's a kind of connection there. But the voice and the style is in there somewhere, but it's background noise. And I prefer shouty Mike as opposed to, <laughs> you know, sensitively whispering in my ear Mike. Well, these these weren't meant to be theatrical releases. They were filmed as straight-to-video films. And yeah. it was only after they were sort of seen by the the studio that they were like well we're releasing these theatrically then (laughs) yeah and that you know that does add to the story of these movies as well um which does you know make them stand out a a lot of this stuff is covered on the commentaries rainy dog has a very solid commentary um it's by tom mez who does all of them uh the the author of agitator the cinema of takeshi Miike. Uh, for me it was a bit dry but interesting uh, and i think that what uh tom mez kind of lacks in charisma he makes up for with an abundance of expertise and he contextualizes these movies within Mike's overall career and um it does make for an interesting listen uh what what do you think of the commentary Dan yeah I think it's really good I would say that if you're if you want to delve into the commentaries and I think there is enough information in there um even if you've read Tom's book that that it's worth listening to but the commentaries unlike the films do have to be watched in order yeah um jumping into if you haven't seen either of the other two jumping into the commentary for the for rainy dog feels like you're late to class oh that's a very good point actually yeah don't don't do that um yeah no that's an excellent point and uh, a huge kind of side recommendation for agitator that is a, a fantastic yeah, a great book fantastic book um a very heavily bookmarked book yeah <laughs> about 10 feet from me yeah no it's it's fantastic and that's kind of all i have to say about this one unless you have any other thoughts 
No, I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm happy to move on. There's, there's aspects of it that I'll touch on in recommendations. Great. So, you know, we'll be coming back to it. But it's, yeah, it's a, it's a great box set. I, the one thing I would say is that you said it's, it's something you wouldn't recommend to any but the hardest, you know, the most diehard Mike fans. Mm. I'd say that like there are Mike films, there are certainly Mike films I'd recommend to Mike fans after this. Like you know, you have the first Bodyguard Kiba is not great. There's there's a lot of sort of like slightly ropey stuff right at the beginning. Mm. Um, uh, some of his slightly peculiar, more sort of like J-pop stuff is not to my taste. But actually, this is probably the one I would recommend to a not Mike fan. Okay. Like you know, I'm I, I wouldn't say to someone, oh, your first Mike, you know, unless I know them very well and I know that this is a solid recommendation for other reasons. I wouldn't sit someone down and say your first Mike should be Ichi the Killer, you know. But I might say to someone, oh, you started to become interested in Japanese cinema. This is a favorite of mine. You should watch it. I see. I the reason I wouldn't do it in that way is. I just think it's so ordinary in comparison to the rest of his work. Um, it's it, it it doesn't have that sort of bombastic signature. It's not happiness of the Katakuris. It's not Fudo. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have that like what the fuck factor. But but for every film Mike's done where that what the factor what the fuck factor pays off, mm. he's done a couple where it doesn't. No, I mean you that's know. definitely true. Anyone with the level of output that he's got, it, there's going to be some misses in there, in with the hits. But I just think that if I showed this to someone, I'm not necessarily sure if they'd be like, right, I have to seek out the entirety of this director's career. I think they'd be like, oh yeah, that was fine. Whereas if you show them something like Audition First, for example they'd they'd be like holy shit my mind is blown show me everything yeah i mean like the Um, thing is audition is yeah i just think there's so many ahead of this in the queue in terms of something that will form an addiction to this director's kind of back catalogue but um i know you see it differently yeah i mean i think i've got different first mikes for different types of people got it yeah yeah um and i think audition is an obviously an exceptional film um i think it might put off you said, you know, there are, all cineasts would love audition. I think all cineasts with a strong stomach would love audition. I know a lot of people who are very upset by it. <laughs> right. And and I, and I think that they're not going to want to watch, you know, a teenage assassin who can fire poison darts out of her vagina. They're not going to want to watch a film where the opening titles morph out of a pool of semen that's been ejaculated by a voyeur. <laughs> like you know they're not I mean, going to want a, I've heard a nothing music... so far that I don't like but yeah no I I, I understand yeah I am a sicko and I you know, make you... provocative films so of course well, but I'm I, but be I, drawn I, to I love that stuff. that stuff too but but I yeah I do feel that it's not just another Yakuza movie I think there's there's a sort of a depth and a and an uh, a sort of an interest to it that isn't seen in a lot of a lot of this kind of like more dramatic less crazy yakuza stuff Mm. but then you know we're so lucky nowadays that we've got access to like pretty much the entire back catalogue of Sion Sono, uh, Katano, yeah. Ishii, Mike, like all these guys, these amazing directors. But you've got to remember that when I saw this, I was literally just going and buying everything Japanese from the sh- that little shop in Chinatown Absolutely. where I used to get discs. Yeah, yeah. Like I, the first time I watched Audition, I watched it on a little 14-inch CRT screen in my room at my parents' house with my then-girlfriend asleep on my lap. Uh, and like just 
you know, I basically woke her up when my jaw dropped on her. <laughs> no, um, absolutely. Like these things were just gems that you discovered. But even then, I remember thinking, like, Itchy the Killer, it, it got, it uh, verred a little bit into mean spirited in a couple of places, particularly the razor on the table scene mm-hmm. um, for my liking. But also, it was just kind of one note. Like, Asano is incredible in it. There's so, there's so much to love about that film. But I would say, I'd I'd still say my four favourites are Rainy Dog, Fudo, Audition, and Blues Harp. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, very fair. And just to be clear to the precious Arrowheads, I do think this is a good film. Like I said, it's a three-star movie. And three stars, in my opinion, is not a diss. I actually think that kind of most films are three stars, really. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a three-star movie. I think we kind of drifted into a culture where everything has to be either absolutely mind-blowingly incredible or utterly in the gutter terrible um, in terms of online discourse. But I just think this is a solid film. Um, I'm not going to watch it again anytime soon. But yeah, I, I and, and that's kind of why I wanted to dig in a little bit and, and find out the stories around it for you, Dan, because, yeah, whenever I watch a film like this and it's some, one of my friend's kind of favourite ever movies, I'm like, why is this one of their favourite ever movies? What what associations do they have with it that makes it so special? Because that's one of the wonderful things about cinema. Um, like I use my letterboxed, my private letterboxed um, list of all the films I've watched. And I've been doing this for, a, you know, I've got, I think I've got like 10 years worth of, of um, every movie I've seen in that year on letterbox on private, because I used to keep a diary of them. And now I just put them onto letterbox. But anyway, the point is, um, when I go back and look at those lists, all I have to see is the film I was watching at the time. And it takes me back to that moment in my life it's like it's better than a diary in that respect i can vividly feel the emotions that i had at the time so that's what cinema is for it's a kind of yeah. a, a machine for those kinds of um processing those kinds of feelings that are around you in the moment and it sounds like this film is associated with such a special memory so i'm very glad you chose it uh even though it was a uh, you know it, it wasn't my favorite the ones that you've uh, picked recently i mean even like um uh what was the name of the um of the stingray movie damn Sting of Death. <laughs> yeah, Sting of Death. Yeah. Um, I'd even rather watch that again than this, but um, that's not to diss it. It's just because, you know, certain wow. films are more fun than others. Um, yeah, I <laughs> uh, I know. I, I'm, I'm a complicated person, Dan. I really am. You're an enigma wrapped in a mystery. <laughs> uh, and um, on that, one thing, move one on? One thing I will say... But one more thing before we go, yeah, on, actually, go on. that I wanted to mention. A little while ago, I talked about uh, those movies that when you see them, like bits of film history kind of make sense Mm. um and while this isn't necessarily one of those i would say that this is a very important jigsaw piece in the tableau of tarantino oh yeah that's Um, very true yeah yeah the the the, there's a moment at the end of this film that is so like traced around for a very famous scene in in a tarantino film yeah that uh, that a lot of things will make sense. You've talked around that very well, Dan. But um, yeah, when when the Arrowheads see it, they'll know exactly what you're talking about because it is so profoundly lifted. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, recommendations, Dan. What have you got for us? Um. So I, I, 
like I have three and I know we're not going to do three. We're going to do two. And I think I'm probably going to drop the one that you predicted just because I've recommended it before. Fair enough. Um, so my first one is by Tung Xing Yi from 2009. It's a Chinese movie. And just as Rainy Dog is about a Japanese gangster in uh, a country that some people claim is part of China. <laughs> some people claim isn't a country. Uh, Shinjuku Incident is... First off, it's one of those rare Category 3 Jackie Chan films. And secondly, it's about a Chinese labourer stuck in Japan uh, after he's headed there to find his missing girlfriend and loses his papers so can't go back to China. And he ends up embroiled in like a subclass of illegal Chinese workers who he becomes more and more sort of like hierarchically involved with trying desperately to stop them from battling with a local yakuza so it's kind of like a mirror almost held up to rainy dog it's a it's an absolutely great film um i i've always got a soft spot for for jackie I, you know i love jackie chan movies you know the early stuff but this was a modern one that was like surprising because it's it's violent it's bare knuckle there's no mugging to camera and he doesn't jump through a single ladder which maybe that's all you want from a jackie chan film but i like his physical ability and sometimes i like it when he uses it to crack skulls no that's that's a great recommendation dan that really fits because yeah, it's not a typical Jackie Chan movie in the same way this isn't a typical Takeshi exactly. Miike movie. So yeah, that's really good. Um, I'm going to start with uh, another movie by a Japanese director with a protagonist in a light suit, um, but where one uses a gun, here the lead loses a gun. Oh, yes. yes. And where Rainy Dog is about wet weather, Stray Dog is about hot weather. Um, so yeah, kind of fairly tenuous connections, but I'll take any opportunity to recommend this early Akira Kurosawa masterpiece. Um, My favorite Kurosawa's. Yeah, the the plot has a high concept, kind of worthy of a summer blockbuster. A cop loses his gun and has to find it before it's used for evil. It's got a similar amount of wandering around as Rainy Dog, but Stray Dog's use of dissolves and close-ups and creative framing are a little bit more interesting uh, to me. They both have much deeper themes that they're dealing with um, related to violence. Uh, so there's another connection there. But either way, if you haven't seen Stray Dog, my God, seek it out oh, immediately. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, those close-ups. It's set on the hot. You know that that another one of my favourite cinematic tropes: the hottest day of the yeah. year. Um, and those like sort of sweaty close-ups of the like perspiration-covered detective trying to track down this revolver, like counting the bullets in it. Just so good. That's it. Such an amazing film. Yeah, it really is. I thought about revisiting it this week ahead of doing it as a recommendation, but I was like, I, I actually can't face watching. <laughs> uh stray dog uh in this heat in this heat wave um <laughs> like it makes you feel hot even in the winter so um but yeah when it cools down a bit precious arrowhead um stick on stray dog you will not regret it dan what is next from you um my next one's uh another Mike, and it's an underseen one it's from 1998 it is available on dvd i, I still have my dvd from chinatown um, as far as I know, that's the only DVD of it, but uh, it's available on eBay and it's probably on YouTube or something. Um, it's from 1998. Uh, it's called Bird People in China. Now, Sam, if you thought Rainy Dog was un Mike Mike, <laughs> then this is the most un Mike Mike because this is, uh, well, 
this is to uh, Rainy Dog what uh, Kikajiro is to Violent Cop. Oh, excellent. Wow. Um, Bird People in China is about a young salaryman who is traveling outside of Japan to the countryside of China, a rare sight in Japanese cinema, and on the journey is met by a Yakuza who's been sent because his... um, his company is owed, like the Yakuza gang has a debt that it's trying to reclaim from the company that the salaryman works for. Obviously, this is made in uh, 1998, at some time before the Olympus scandal in 2011. I don't know how much of our, how many of our listeners know much about that, but there was a, a lid was blown off by a Western journalist living in, uh, or a Western worker living in um, Japan about like quite how far into big industry the Yakuza had their like tendrils. This chap Michael Woodford had to like. He, he whistle blew and then he had to be like snuck out of the country via embassies and you know getting emergency passports and just told his family pack up we're leaving but yeah so this is about a yakuza and a salary who sort of latches onto the salary man and they're going out to this place in in rural china where they've found a a seam of rare jade through a mountainside that the company wants to prospect and it starts off a little bit like a, a little sorcerer e trying to get there <laughs> the oh. journey is horrible and then when they get there it turns a little bit into that movie i recommended a while back about the people that find themselves in a, a rural like countryside village in the middle of the war and the people don't even know the war's going on they're basically in this tiny little town there's a bunch of slightly peculiar things going on, not least of which is a school teaching children how to fly, which is the titular bird people of China. And it's absolutely charming. There's a little bit of violence in it. There's a there's a, a fantastic shootout at one point. But for the most part, it's a really beautiful, lyrical movie shot up in the hills of, of uh, rural China. Like with Rainy Dog, uh, Mike went over with very few Japanese crew and had to like put his crew together from, from local crew only. So it sort of borrows a little bit of the aesthetic of the country that he's filming in. But it's a it's a it's a fantastic tender moment and it's got some lovely like hints of the crazy Mike stuff as well that you'd like, including some fantastic turtle propelled vehicles. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, well you've done it again because uh I actually do want to seek that one out even though it is uh low key Mike. So um Yes, um, who knows? Uh, maybe I'll be recommending that in the future. My next Loki Miki. Sorry, Loki Miki. Loki Miki. Yes, yes. <laughs> that is not going to become a new catchphrase of the show, but um, <laughs> but I like it for this one. Um, yeah. So uh, my next recommendation, based on Rainy Dog, is Gloria. Um, because if you're talking kind of a little kid walking around with a total badass movies. There is a lot to choose from, whether that's stuff like Leon or Logan or, or Lone Wolf and Cub. But I am going to go for a movie that doesn't begin with L. Uh, I am going for John Cassavetti's Gloria, which sees uh, a badass loner woman protecting a kid from the mob who killed his family. It is 100% an inspiration for Leon, talking about directors, quote unquote, borrowing from other movies. And it has that kind of film's mixture of emotion and explosions of violence but just in terms of the plot like it is so like for like Leon it's not a traditional Cassavetes movie by any stretch but I really do recommend Gloria there is an out of print Twilight Time blu-ray 
but I think that's about it. So let's hope that Arrow picks this one up at some point. It is a, a really, really great one. And like I say, not traditional Cassavetes. It, it just feels like one of those kind of 70s, 80s punchy crime movies uh, as opposed to his normal kind of more lyrical and improvised and experimental films that... Um, I also love, you know, stuff like uh, Opening Night and A Woman Under the Influence and Killing of a Chinese Bookie, whatever. Um, so I've done a kind of inverse, uh, not a typical movie from this director um, because it's more violent than his normal stuff. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, nice recommendations. Shall we yeah, move on to recommendations from the past couple of weeks? Yes, but I would say that you can watch Gloria on Prime Video. Uh, it's a rental. Oh. It's not very expensive. Nice. Um, so it is available in this country. And Burr People of, in China is indeed on uh, on YouTube in its entirety. Do you know what else I'd very, very quickly recommend? And I'm not going to go into the details of the plot because uh, it's one that I've talked about in the past. But I found that the outfit is available on Amazon Prime to buy or rent. Who is it? Yeah. And uh, a Robert Duvall crime movie fucking fantastic film so it's pretty cheap on there as well so the outfit is a, a massive recommendation for prime people um but let's let's move on to stuff from the past couple of weeks dan what have you been watching i watched the 4k blu-ray of perdita durango from severin nice oh my goodness uh i saw perdita durango many many years ago in the cut version uh, and had not seen the uncut version, which I've been led to believe not a lot of people have seen, but you know maybe maybe that's one of those selling points. I'm not sure, uh, like you know bits of blurb. Mm. Um, for those of you who don't know it, it's you know one of my go-to fun time directors, uh, Alex de la Iglesia, who I've I've recommended a handful of his films before. I think it's from 1997. It was his first like kind of biggish outside of uh, like Eng I think it was his first English language film uh, predominantly English language uh, stars Rosie Perez and Javier Bardem but has fantastic sort of smaller part turns from James Gandolfini and Santiago Segura who some of our viewers might know as Torrente it's based on a true story uh, of a sort of culty sacrifice -y madman and his girlfriend going on a, a rampage a kidnap and killing spree it's got it's got little bits of you know your natural Born killers in there all that kind of stuff it's actually written by uh, barry gifford who wrote wild at heart and lost highway mm. uh, and like it's got wild and heart wild at heart all over it it's got some fantastic like crazy like uh like sort of sacrifice moments there's a, a fantastic bit where bardem who's got possibly the best mullet ever committed to film cuts up a body that they've stolen from a uh, from a graveyard in front of a crowd of like baying people while screaming jay hawkins like rattles a stick next to him and then eats his heart in front of everyone but the main story is about them kidnapping a, a young couple of sort of aryan american children who they're going to sacrifice alongside the stealing of a truck full of aborted fetuses that are going to get used for rejuvenating skin cream the uh the new first for the first time uncut version quotes that i uh that i saw definitely had a lot more uh murdering of children and general manhandling of fetuses <laughs> it's a bloody bombastic delight and it's if you know iglesia it's like him with a touch of uh, gregoraki it's absolutely fantastic excellent great one it it is on uh, it's on Amazon in this country. I don't know if it's uncut here. Right. So if anyone listening to this knows, uh please uh, tweet at us and let us know if that's the uncut version. 
Awesome. My first recommendation is one that I think more people will probably have seen already, but not in this form. Uh, this is the second sight Blu-ray release of The Babadook. Uh, it's been delayed, actually, this release, but it is finally out now. And it is magnificent. There's an unreal commentary from my favourite special feature contributor, Alexandra Heller Nicholas, who's joined by a new favourite, Josh Nelson. And make no mistake, this is the audio commentary of the year. The level of insight and analysis here is absolutely second to none. If you love this film, you are going to be in paradise. And even if you think it's it's not as great as everyone says it is, you're wrong. But uh, <laughs> this commentary will kind of pull out some of the stuff that, that maybe you've missed. Uh, and they have a, a fantastic chemistry. So it, it's an absolute joy to listen to. Um, and yeah, so much fantastic information that I'd, I'd never heard before. But there's loads of great extras, including the original short film, which is very Lynchian and very terrifying. So yeah, this release has my highest recommendation. The film itself is maybe the last modern horror movie to actually scare me. Um, and it fucked me up on this watch as much as the first. Um, for me, it's a modern day shining that's as much about abuse as it is about grief. And as great as its reputation is, I feel like it's still underrated. Um, Jennifer Kent is a master of horror. And if you want a really fun time, uh, pair it with Antichrist because um, <laughs> I spotted some real crossover between those two films this time around. And yeah, that'll be a fun evening, won't it, Dan? Yeah, The Babadook, <laughs> I recommend it. Dan, how do you feel about this film? I really enjoyed it when I watched it, and the further I got from it, the more uncomfortable I felt about it as being abuse apologist. Um, I would be interested to revisit it for sure. Yeah. Re it's very, very well made. Yeah, revisit it and um, and, and definitely listen to that commentary because uh, it touches on, on that kind of thing. It is a, a very, very powerful movie that oh, um, gives catharsis as well as discomfort. And holy fuck, every time I watch it, it absolutely terrifies me. So... Um, you know, that's what you want from your horror. So uh, I, I very much re recommend that release. Uh, Dan, what's next from you? My next uh, recommendation is not a very good film. Oh, OK. <laughs> well, um, extra um, features, extra features. No, go on. <laughs> um, it's well, so I revisited it because I. it's a sequel. It's a sequel that was made 19 years after the original. Um, and it's I'd rewatched the original not that long ago, like within the last six months, and I thought, you know what, I'd I'd like to watch this. I was, you know, I had a few drinks, uh, and Jen was like, let's watch a cartoon, and I was like, all right, <laughs> we're watching Heavy Metal Two Thousand. Wow. Okay. Um, have you seen Heavy Metal Two Thousand, Sam? I've seen the original Heavy Metal. Okay. Well, there you go. So I love the original Heavy Metal. It has a lot of problems. But it it really did sort of like sum up the magazine. I was a big fan of the magazine. I first picked up a copy of it under its French title, Metal Alain um, Herlant, uh, in phonetic English. Um, 
uh, in France when on holiday with my family and I had no idea what was going on in it, but I loved the drawings. And then uh, when I was a little bit older, I managed to find a, an English language copy in a, a comic book shop. Uh, and from then on, it, I was sort of tracking it down. It's got these amazing, you know, amazing comic book people were writing for it. It was where I first saw the work of people like Mobius and the first sort of time I saw the comic work of Dan O'Bannon and Jodorowsky. So, you know, some, some pretty heavyweight stuff. Um, the first movie came out uh, and it's an anthology animation. They're hit and miss, but they're great. And it, it really took the idea of the magazine and the title, the English title of the magazine, Heavy Metal to Heart, because it was essentially a, a very long set of animated music videos. I'd say the places where it fell down were the fact that it was largely animated by the illustrators from the magazine, and they are illustrators, not animators, and often it felt a bit clunky and, you know, sort of like 12 frames a second at best. Um, but there's a lot of love to be had with it. When they went ahead and made Heavy Metal 2000, I... God knows what they were fucking thinking. Simon Bisley is one of the writers. I think he's probably, you know, the best thing about it. Um, Julie Strain was animated as the lead and plays the lead. They got rid of the anthology section aspect of it and it just became a, a standard narrative. And it became just kind of like some weird hard sci-fi stuff. If you've seen the South Park episode that makes fun of heavy metal, they're really, I think, making fun of heavy metal 2000, mm -hmm. which is is much more aligned with what they're talking about. But it's, you know, it's lots of slightly ropey animation, although often smoother than the uh, than the original until the end when they have a CGI baddie in an otherwise cell animated cartoon who has a walking cycle that makes Tammy and the T-Rex look like it was done by industrial light and magic. <laughs> but yeah, there's just a lot of fun to be had with it. It's totally brainless. It's got that kind of like, I don't know if you've seen Wizards by Vaughn Bode. Yeah. Um, Vaughn Bode, whose work again, I, I first became aware of in heavy metal. But it's got that kind of like, like it's punctuated by sight gags, you know, all the way through. They do like a little, a little throwaway gag there, and that's really where it feels most like an anthology. But yeah, don't don't go watching it thinking I'm telling you that you're about to discover this like lost animated gem. Fantastic planet, it is not, but um, but there is fun to be had with it. Okay, and th so this is another film that you're recommending based on your very specific experience of watching it. Is that correct? Dan? No, <laughs> no, because because I, I, I like this is a film I'm recommending because I've literally watched it in the last couple of weeks. Right, yeah, fair. And I and I had a good time with it, yeah, but yeah. I do feel that that has to come with a heavy caveat. It's not the first time I watched it. I chose to watch it again, albeit probably only you know 20 years later it's only the second time i've seen it right it's yeah it's it's not an incredible film but it is fun fair yeah well it's better than all of the modern films i've seen in the last couple of weeks right yes modern films are a little bit broken aren't they um apart oh from the God. ones that we make and work on obviously um right uh i am gonna recommend a film from 1983 that film is portrait in crystal dan do you know portrait in crystal I do not know it. Okay, so you may remember when I showed you Battle Wizard, when I yeah. basically watched it and then came running down the stairs and said, we have to watch this. If I was still living with you, it would be a very similar experience with Portrait in Crystal. Um, it, it's basically, yeah, it's a very similar watching experience, but with less chicken-footed wizards breathing fire. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> but instead, Dan, <laughs> there's a living statue made of crystal who fights using the power of jump cut editing. It is 
I, I've just checked, and it is on my to-watch list already. I, I didn't recognise the title. It's a, it is a Shaw Brothers film. Exactly, and that, um, that is the reason it will be on your watch list, I imagine. But, um, yeah, it's... Bumped up, yeah. It's basically about a sculptor trying to solve a series of murders that may or may not have been committed by one of his creations, which is possibly possessed by a demon. But it is even weirder than that sounds. I will post some screen grabs when this episode goes live. So look for me on Twitter for some of my favourite shots from the movie. I really love the weird shores, stuff like Demon of the Loot or Boxer's Omen or or, or Battle Wizard, as we mentioned. And this kind of feels like a, a crossover between several of the the weirder shores Uh, so many great shots and odd moments there's horror in there great action obviously and some really really fun special effects so portrait in crystal it's pretty hard to get hold of and this recommendation may well be more directed at the overlords above us in Arrow Towers, because if they wanted to stick this on one of their upcoming shore box sets, I certainly wouldn't complain. It's only got something like 61 ratings on IMDb, so it's definitely underseen. But my God, is it fun. And Arrow, you would bring people so much joy if you put this out on Blu-ray. So, Portrait in Crystal, I recommend it to you, Precious Arrowhead, but I also recommend it to you, Feared Arrow Overlords. All right, well, let's go into extra features, extra features, extra features. Extra features. And, Dan, what is your extra feature for this fortnight? Um, well, so when I was uh, doing a bit of uh, checking out of some of the titles I was going to recommend based on, I was looking at Tung Xing Yi's back catalogue, the guy that directed Shinjuku Incident that I uh, that I recommended, and I was reminded of a film that I had completely slipped my mind, but that I absolutely adore. Uh, it's another one that's uh, quite hard to find, although I suspect it's on YouTube. It's his directorial debut from 1986. It's called The Lunatics. It's an absolutely heartbreaking story about the mentally ill destitute uh, being failed by a compassionate but woefully under-equipped social work system in Hong Kong. Uh, and it's told via the lens of a journalist following one of these social workers around. It's absolutely incredible. It, you know, 1986 was the year that A Better Tomorrow came out, but this also has Chai on fat in it in an unrecognisable performance, like an absolutely career-unique performance as a homeless man living in a junkyard trying to support his sick children. It is heartbreaking. Mm. It is amazing. Wow. Wow, yeah, that sounds great. That that sounds a bit more potentially interesting than my extra feature, because if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need me to add to the marketing of the first Fear Street movie, <laughs> 1994, which I, I watched on Netflix, and I, I really dug it. It had kind of an American Horror Story slash Stranger Things vibe in the way it mixes up a bunch of different influences and references but it had solid representation a really lovable main cast of characters and I actually watched it on a date with my partner Shay and it was just such a fun dual watch Shay knows more about movies than I do so it was kind of a great jumping off point to talk about a whole host of other films including Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 which is the greatest film about trauma ever made Um, but yeah the point is 
like it's just it is a fun non-taxing watch i know we talked earlier on about how modern movies are broken i don't know how you feel about this uh this first fear street movie dan but i really recommend it and we're going to be doing the next two over the course of the next couple of weeks so no spoilers for me on twitter if you do spoil any of these films for me i will instantly block you uh even though uh, as an arrowhead i do love you but sometimes we have to be cruel to be kind um and yeah i i'm hoping that the next two are as enjoyable as the first one if not more so um i do wonder what the needle drop tracks will be in fear street 1666 though maybe a bunch of monks chanting enya uh we'll see but yeah really good fun and Dan, have you had a chance to watch Fear Street 1994 and how did you feel? I haven't. I've been kind of warned off it. Okay, who who warned you off out of out of interest? Everyone other than you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. I mean, you and I, are, uh, as much as we're friends and collaborators, uh, we do sometimes veer off taste-wise. This yeah. podcast is very much evidence of that. But yeah, I think I will I, I will probably give it a give it a go at some point. I, uh, it's just not at the top of my list. I think one of the things that was kind of uh, a turning point for me in terms of actually watching it was a friend of the podcast Tim Coleman tweeted that the final part of the trilogy uh, is one of the best horror movies of the year for him like it absolutely oh wow okay yeah yeah it absolutely blew him away so i was like right okay i i do need to give this a go and and shay wanted to watch it as well so yeah we're basically building towards that final installment to see what it is for me anyway what it is that that blew tim coleman away so um, I'm sure I'll report back on, on a future episode when I get to the end yeah, of yeah. it. But yeah, that's that's it, isn't it? Because we've restricted ourselves to one extra feature um, because looking at the time, we are, again, over an hour, even though this was going to be a short one. So <laughs> let's let's leave it there and uh, tell people how to follow us on social media. Dan, why don't you go first? I'm at 13fingerfx on Twitter and on Instagram. I've been a bit quiet on both of late uh, just because I'm hecka busy at work but mm. uh i'll be posting more stuff uh as and when i'm allowed to from from upcoming things uh and you know yeah that kind of thing follow me also tell me if uh Perdita durango on amazon is uncut in the uk please fantastic and i am at sam ashurst which is just my name on twitter and uh yeah i i've started sharing the episodes and putting screen grabs from various movies that that we've recommended i think this time i'm going to focus entirely on portrait in crystal but if you're interested in in seeing what grabs grab me from from the movies we discussed then do follow me on twitter that's it i'm going to go into the catchphrase now dan unless you have any final words uh, I'm desperately trying to work out if Perdita Durango's cut in the UK. I'm on the BBFC website. <laughs> it was last. It was last submitted in 2006 by Metrodome, who are no longer existent. Yeah. Uh, so I suspect the whatever rights were there have either defaulted back to the rights holder or are owned by one of the companies that that bought them out of liquidation. But it does mean that they definitely don't have whatever scan was done by Severin for the new disc as the source. But then do Amazon give a fuck about the BBFC, really? Like, they're not, they're only like, do, they only abide by the ratings as, an, as a sort of a favour. They're not legally obliged to. So who knows? Yeah. My request stands. Please message me. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And we promise to be more professional. More professional. Next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.